Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Christoph Defoe. I'm Liz Wilson. Today we bring you a conversation that Liz and I had with Jeremiah Gibson and Julia Postema, co-hosts of the podcast Sex Evangelicals, the sex education the church didn't want you to have. They are both Boston-based licensed psychotherapists and certified sex therapists who work with clients in Massachusetts. They specialize in helping couples with negative religious backgrounds discover sexuality that works for their partnership. They are currently doing an 18-month stint in the Netherlands, spending their time traveling to places that tend to fly below the radar, long-distance hiking, cooking very spicy food, having unexpected conversations, and enjoying introverted days filled with reading and drinking fancy tea. They are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Sexvangelicals. We had a wonderful conversation with Julia and Jeremiah, and we're looking forward to sharing it with you. But first... I want to remind you that if you like our show, to make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on all the major podcast channels. Also, be sure to check out our sponsor, Cannibal & Co., located in downtown Jersey City and at shopcannibal.com. We're grateful to Cannibal for sponsoring our show. And now, without further ado, as they say, here are Jeremiah and Julie. Uh, that's actually perfect um (laughs) let's start with the foreplay let's start with the foreplay i love it you guys are the experts why don't you take it away with the foreplay make sure we're all ready for that (laughs) all looped up oh that's amazing that's amazing um so yeah so uh netherlands why are you in the netherlands (laughs) well we had an interest so julia and i are both uh couples therapists in Massachusetts. And in Massachusetts, with COVID, all of our work turned virtual for a few years. And we had in Massachusetts, the rule is as long as our clients are residents of the state of Massachusetts or are in the state of Massachusetts, we as therapists can be anywhere in the world. So we started talking about hey, like if we could live anywhere in the world for the next couple of years, where would that be? And uh, Julia's family is Dutch. She has some extended relatives that live uh, outside of Amsterdam. And so uh, about a couple of years ago, we decided to begin the process of looking into moving. And we moved to the Netherlands. We're in uh, the city of Utrecht, um, which is about 30 minutes south of Amsterdam. And uh, we made that move in June and are planning on being here for another year and a half or so. That's... Wow, you're living the dream. That's like living the dream. Um, kind of. It's what we all talk about doing: escaping to like a place where you know there's like social safety nets and things like that. And you, yeah. yes, good job, guys. And in terms of expat life, the Netherlands is fairly easy to navigate. Sure. We are English speakers. Many people speak English. Uh, in terms of immigration systems, although confusing a much easier process than other places. So we are lucky expats. And we also both share the value of intentionally putting ourselves in places in which we might be the other, because ultimately I will be a better human being at the end of this. And I have, I have already become a better human being. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. That yo, that's fucking deep. I, I mean, I love that because I love that. You know, what was really fascinating to sort of turn this on its head is I went to South Africa like a two couple years ago, and um, it was a complicated trip because uh, my father was ill and he lived in South Africa at the time. Um, and but I also was really interested. In, I'm big into motorcycling, so I, I wanted to go on this motorcycle trip while I was there, which I did. But what was fascinating about South Africa, and and it was the first time I had ever gone to a country, certainly as an adult, gone to a country where 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 I was not a minority. Yeah. And it was like a total mind fuck, right? It was just mm. like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's so weird. And, and of course in South Africa, like the minority is still more powerful, obviously, for sure. In South Africa, right? White people are more powerful. But the, the point is the experience of turning that on its head, right? When you're so used to being in this category and you're suddenly placed in that category, I think it's fantastic. And especially coming from the perspective of um, Americans going to another country and being the minority and being sort of the other, so to speak. I think that's that's super cool. That's, I I have a lot of uh, respect for you for doing that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I grew up in Canada, and I mean, it's definitely going from like white country to white country, but. It, it, I felt very, I felt different from everybody around me because I, I remember I was like 15 when I moved and I remember realizing so viscerally that this place, Toronto, that to me had been the center of the universe. I moved to this other place in New Jersey and I was like, only these people all think this is the center of the universe. (laughs) Like it really just shifted my perspective. And I just feel like it does something to your brain, yes. you know, living in another place. Yes. And I I also appreciate the idea that diversity looks all different kinds of ways and that uh, that is more than what we automatically might see in, in terms of uh, some of the categories that we often immediately go to with difference. And so to to see people um, who who look like me or who might share at least one language and still are so different allows me to consider difference uh, in in a more nuanced kind of way. Yeah. Totally. And even very, very in cool. the country, Julia. So, so Julia, your last name is Postuma. Oh, right. Postuma is is a Dutch last name, uh, but Postuma is actually a Frisian last name. So the the a Frisian um, kind of section is a it's it's a province in the northern part of the Netherlands, and and even in the Netherlands, which is the size of West Virginia, there are people in Amsterdam, people in Utrecht who have no idea what to do with your name. Even though your name is Dutch. Right. So people yeah. are automatically are like, oh, oh you're one of us. Stima. And they'll start, you know, they'll make assumptions of like, oh, you're Dutch. Yeah. You understand. You un- you know the customs, the language. And then I have to explain I am, but um, I-, I grew up in the state, so I don't understand the language. And then other times people are like, what's, what's your last name? And I'm like, I'm here. I'm one of you. Essential, <laughs> like a Dutch name ever. There are thirty thousand of us currently living in this country. <laughs> With like Dutch name for like the northern region, so it's just a very bizarre experience to also be um, where my family is from and a lot of grief and not knowing the language and not understanding the cultural norms, even though like this is where. 
my, my dad and my family are from. And so when my dad comes to visit, you know, he whips out the Dutch accent, he understands and, and I, and I don't, and that's a, that's a hard experience. Yeah. I could see that. I can see that. You know, I think that, uh, I, I, you know, what jumped to my mind as you're talking there is, uh, from my experience, first of all, being in, being in Africa, certainly, I mean, I was born in Africa, right? I was born in Dakar, but, um, have, but going back there, but I left very young. And so going back there as an adult, um, that sort of weird feeling of feel of being like, I should be connected to this, yes. but I'm not. Yes. And, um, my parents were my my dad's a, a, an immigrant like right like first generation immigrant right and so he speaks and my, and both my parents speak fluent French my dad used to speak he's he's passed now but he speaks a lot of different languages um cultural languages and so not being connected to that I think is can be challenging and I think in a weird way too I have that experience in terms of being black in America right like there's yeah. sort of like a black culture right of which I am absolutely not really a part right. and so I just didn't grow up in it I grew up around white people right so you know my experience is like radically different than a lot of other black people's experience and so there's this like weird feeling of like you st i just really identify what you're saying there it's like all like you said like a bit of grief yeah. of not being able to fully connect with that so um that's that's really interesting very nuanced thoughtful people you are i like this yeah. yes, <laughs> me too. Uh, this, this is not the point of this podcast episode uh, so so i'm actually ethnic basque and uh, we, okay. um, two summers ago, we went to Spain and we hiked the Camino de Santiago, which is a 600-mile hike across uh, northern Spain. And it starts in Basque country. Um, the, the problem is I'm also adopted. <laughs> so, so I know I'm Basque like, because the hospital paperwork like, told me that. Um, so, so it was a really weird experience being in Spain, having people like talk to me in Spanish. And, and much uh, do you feel like you're talking about, Julia, like you're talking about like having like no – having kind of this physical representation that I belong here, but only that. And so mm -hmm. walking through places like, like Guernica, for instance, which is, uh, which is the, which is a, a, a essentially like a martyrdom spot in Northern Spain. It's where um, uh, Generalissimo Franco kind of turned the other way and said, sure, Hitler, you can use a Luftwaffe to buy shit out of this country. Like, like being there and feeling like I should be having some sort of emotional experience. I have no connection with these people and that in and of itself is the emotional experience and probably not what the constructors of the uh, the, the, the peace site in Guernica were thinking about when they were constructing the... Um, I love this. I mean, I think, you know, these nuanced conversations, I think, um, and, and maybe this is your, your, your background as therapist, right? And you're thoughtful people, clearly you're um, progressive thinking people. Um, I, I want the audience to sort of get to know you a little bit. Um, in, and we have discussed a bit, a bit, bit of that now, but I want to talk a little bit about your your professional background, right? So you were both licensed uh, psychotherapist, sex therapist. So explain to us what that means. Um, what does that mean? How did you get to this point where you're like, you know what, human sexuality, I want to become an expert in that. Jeremiah, do you want to first describe what sex therapy is? And sure. then we can talk about our individual journeys into sex therapy. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so there's a couple of elements within sexuality that we're thinking about. One is sexuality from the perspective of expression. Like, so how a person uh, represents us. So this could be as, as explicit as like gender identity and how people uh, explore that, how people, how people dress, how people speak, um, ways that people, 
choose to um, make decisions about their body that, that may or may not represent different types of gender. So, so there's that element. There is an element about like attraction and, and, and how attraction works. Um, so so who, you're, who you're attracted to, how you become attracted to that person, how gender plays into it, all that. And then there's the element about uh, sexuality as communication. You know, because ideally, when you are moving into a sexual experience, be that with yourself or with another person, ideally, there's some intentionality around that. Like, like this isn't the movies, right? This isn't Hollywood. Sex usually takes some amount of planning. Uh, for some people, it's two, three minutes worth of planning. For some people, it's two, three days worth of planning. Um, but how do I then kind of figure out what I want to experience with my body? And then in a relational experience, uh, be able to be able to communicate that and to be able to communicate that effectively and work through some of the anxieties and fears of rejection and worthlessness and things like that that come so that I in, in, in a relational setting. So so I, I came into sex therapy through work actually as a couples therapist. Um, so so as a relationship, how two or more people can work together to create something that works for all for all parties. Yeah. What I'll add is that sex therapy, <laughs> joking, I jokingly, but seriously, seriously say sex therapy makes sex a little bit less sexy in the sense that it sounds like a very glamorous profession. It actually uh, is often quite sad because yeah. sex therapy always involves grief and loss. That yeah. was something that uh, a professor said during my postgraduate training. Mm -hmm. But also we're taking these topics that are so often taboo, we're bringing them into the light, demystifying them and making them more accessible. And sometimes that makes it a little bit less sexy, but I think in a good way, because sure. then we're finally able to talk about the things that we're thinking about, yeah. that we're fantasizing about, that we don't necessarily uh, always have the language to access. One of our former supervisors would say, well, there's no such thing as sex therapy because sexuality is a part of our identity. And just like I would talk with a client about their cultural background, their family of origin, um, their profession, sexuality is one other facet of it. And in, in that sense, a, a pretty normal. Well, and the inverse, Julia, of what you're saying is that sexuality the way that a person has sex or the way that a couple has sex, and we, we find this to be commonly true in sexuality, is very similar to the way that a couple makes decisions about other things. So the way oh. that a couple does sex, there's parallels to a way that a couple like solves problems around money, a way that a couple does parenting, a way that a couple just like does conflict resolution, families of origin, those types of things. So, so starting from sex gives us a window into all these other categories of how a couple kind of organizes their relationship. Wow, wow. that's fascinating. That blows my mind, you guys. <laughs> yeah. I, and also, I was thinking as you were talking that it seems like a natural progression because in my mind anyway, sex is sort of like where we are most vulnerable, right? And our sexuality. And so if you're dealing in with and you're talking about your trauma or any like whatever issues you have it's i feel like when it comes to sex all that stuff is just gonna like that's where it's the most raw right absolutely and if you can communicate 
your wants and needs and also do it in a relational context in an incredibly vulnerable space, that also sets you up to be able to do that than these other areas. Right. You can talk about sex well. You can probably talk about anything well. Sure. Right. Absolutely. So just a follow-up question. Uh, In your practice, is there like a a main issue that you find that people are talk come to you with i mean or or when when what who maybe another way to put it is who is your typical typical client um and and what sort of issues are they are are they coming to you, coming to you with do you want me to start with that sure you can start so one of the things that we commonly see in couples therapy is what's called desire discrepancy Uh, So desire discrepancy is two people having different processes for which they access sexuality, for which desire works. Um, So language that we use, a kind of more technical language, is a distinction between spontaneous desire. So so a desire that that happens in a more kind of automatic, short-term, short-runway kind of uh, way, and responsive desire. Uh, where people need more of a construction of a larger context in order to move into sexuality. Um, Often what we find in couples is one partner kind of leans or has more of an expectation towards spontaneous desire. Another person leans more, has more of an expectation of sex works more responsibly. And the problem is that I would argue that Many more people access sexuality responsibly than spontaneously. However, the depictions of sexuality that we have in the mass media are almost exclusively spontaneous. So there's no real kind of visual representation that folks have about, okay, what, where can I turn to to be able to intentionally construct a scenario uh, that allows me to kind of walk my way into sexuality? So fascinating, fascinating. I wonder too if, um, if and maybe if you have thoughts about this, either of you. I wonder the way that our lives tend to be structured. Not your guys' lives because you're living like the life, right? But in uh, but the but you know the sort of rote experience of living in capitalism, which is like, you know, I wake up on Monday and I go to work from this this time to that time. Then I have this time that I have this thing. And, and if I have kids, forget about it. Right. I also have to deal with all of that. Right. Which is a whole other other people's lives beside my own life. I have to deal with and everything becomes very, very routine. Right. Because how else do you get things done? Right. That's how you get everything done is through creating routines. I wonder if that Plus that that really sort of highlights the discrepancy maybe between the media's idea of like this, like swept off my feet, you know, wonderful sex life that's like very sexy. And then and then what was much more, which is much more real or between that and what's much more realistic, which is sort of like, well, we got to fit in sex sometime. When when, when are we going to fit this, fit this in? And so I just I, I just what you were talking about there, I guess, just sort of sparked that in my mind. And I wonder I wonder how much our, like I said, our daily routine and capitalism and all that affects sex and and affects our, all that. I think in, as you were talking, I was aware of 
five different uh, connections to what you're describing. One, in terms of capitalism and productivity, uh, particularly culture in the States, defines a person's worth by their output. And I think that it's very easy to translate that into sex and, and to have uh, a goal-oriented sexual experience. Whether that I am definitely going to have an orgasm or I'm definitely going to, I'm doing air quotes, make my partner have an orgasm, which is a whole other topic, or, or, or just we're going to have it. Not necessarily because I want it or we want it, but because that's what we're supposed to do as a couple or a group or whatever relationship structure you have. So that was one part that I was considering. The other part is that. Um, as, as couples move into a partnership, they share so many uh, different hats. Esther Perel writes about this in her book, Mating in Captivity. And so when you move from dating to partnership, you um, potentially share a home space, or for us, we share a business, or your household managers, your co-parents. And that can be really beautiful, but also can muddy the waters when one person is trying to access sexuality and the other partner is like in administrative mode or in business mode or some other thing. So desire discrepancy exists. But the more that I talk with other colleagues, the more that I think, I wonder how much is actually about desire discrepancy and how much is about like a, a missing of each other. I fully agree with you. And, and, and desire discrepancy is very limiting terminology. Yeah. Um, but, but that's the best that we've got at this oh, stage. Sure. Uh, and Julia, when, when you were talking, I wrote a note to Julia. Uh, are you okay talking about our own relationship in this? <laughs> <laughs> Julia has this beautiful capacity to, to zoom out and to access all of these different elements and parts of herself, including her sexuality. Whereas for me, I am very like, I, when, when I am in administrative mode, I am very much in administrative mode. And sexuality is hard for me to access at that stage. It takes a little bit of extra effort that, that I've got to figure out like how to work on um, and, and how to get so, get so stuck, not get so zoomed in. So, so we, we, we have some. Uh, if you figure that out, please, you know, share because <laughs> I am the administrator or at least I'm the one who has a hard time accessing when I'm in, in administrator mode. And, you know, with two kids, I'm in that mode a sure. lot. Sure. Sure. So that's really interesting. That is so, fascinating. I, I, I have to make notes to myself, uh, like be sexual. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, which again, like gets to Julia, what you were talking about earlier, like sex therapy is not sexy at all. Uh, or <laughs> is that sexuality, like we've got to figure out how to debunk the myth that sexuality happens spontaneously. Yes. Be more intentional about yeah. uh, doing the things that we need to do in order to access sexuality. Yeah. And I, t I understand what you're saying. I think, Defo, when you talk about like, okay, so we've got 10 meetings on the schedule. I've got this like 22 minute specific window for sex. <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not sexy. I was telling Jeremiah and I had a conversation with a client. Like if someone was like, hey Jules, do you want to have sex? Like that would be a big turnoff for me. I'm like, well, 
<laughs> now that you ask, no. Um, <laughs> now that you've asked, right? <laughs> maybe if you hadn't asked me, if you'd like kissed me or something, but now that you ask, no. And I'm um, taking notes over here. But <laughs> <laughs> I do think that we can plan sexuality in a way that could be sexy. Uh, yeah. I don't know what sex therapist originally thought of this. I'm using somebody else's analogy, but the analogy of like, we plan like dinners, right? And I love food. So like food gets me really excited, but like you plan your favorite restaurant and you're like, oh my gosh, am I going to have like my favorite thing on the menu or like, okay, they have a new seasonal menu out and the ambiance is cool. And if you're like me and you like aesthetics and like fashion, you're like, I'm going to wear this and I'm going to look hot as fuck. And you know, you like plan it all out or you're going to invite your friends and it's super sexy and you anticipate it. And you like wake up in the morning, you're like only five more hours till I get to do this thing. And I do think that we can work with sexuality in a similar kind of way to like build some anticipation that's like positive. I like that. I like Mm -hmm. that. I like that. And I think that it sounds like, I mean, and not to split the, not splitting the baby necessarily, but I mean, what you're, it sounds like what you're saying is that like, yeah, we, we need to be intentional. We can't pretend that we're just going to be the right Prince Charming moment. is going to come and we're just going to have this wild, crazy, like, you know, movie sex. Right. Um, but at the same time, we don't want it to be so like another meeting on the schedule either, right? right. There, there has to be something between those things. Well, it's something uh, that's actually fun. It's not right. like another Zoom meeting. Another Zoom meeting, <laughs> something that we have to do because our relationship needs sex, right? Because we're good, right? Like, or I need sex, right? So, no, I like that. I like that a lot. And um, so, um, I we so what? Uh, let's talk about your podcast briefly before we move on. Um, uh, what led you to podcasting? Talk to us about it. What is it? Um, great name, by the way. And uh, that was Liz's question. I want to point out. I don't want to take credit for that. Stealing that was Liz's my, question. It's fine. It's fine, Diva. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't rehearse who was going to do it. So anyway, oh, we're just rolling with it. I love it. Rolling with it. Rolling. No, we're sliding into it. Remember, yeah. we're sliding, sliding, into sliding, it. sliding. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, Sex is a creation of both our professional lives and our personal lives. It is a play on exvangelical, uh, and we are both former uh, folks from evangelical communities and. We know from personal experience and professional experiences that many religious communities, particularly white evangelicalism, can really, really fuck with your sexuality, but not in the good fucking way, the bad. (laughs) (laughs) And as our relationship developed and as we had different uh, stories around sexuality and religion with many, many common themes, we realized, oh, People are spending thousands of dollars coming to us for sex therapy. I also have spent thousands of dollars in sex therapy. Well worth it. Great use of my money. And I really wish I could send my bills to the structures and the systems that fucked me over. I would love to not take my client's money. I would love to send it to the structures and the systems that hurt them. And I wish I didn't have so much job security. So podcasting is a way that hopefully we can help folks in a way that is more accessible. If 
therapy is less accessible. And we can also share our stories in the way that we might not in therapy. I do believe that therapy can be useful when there's self-disclosure. And depending on the client, I am I am happy to share about my personal life. I have appreciated when therapists have like been generous with me about their own stories, but there are still limits around that. So podcasting gives us a way to speak to an audience with a little bit more uh, vulnerability mm-hmm. and with a, a, an educational perspective. Mm-hmm. What would you add? Awesome. Well answered. First of all, I, I would say definitely well answered. our particular audience as well is folks who grew up in some sort of a religious context, uh, could be an overt religious context, evangelicalism, uh, Pentecostalism. There's a lot of similarities and overlaps. Mormonism, okay. incredibly similar structures um, or folks who just like grew up in the U.S., uh, the sex education system, yeah. as we'll talk about in a bit, sucks. Um, so what happens is you ha- we we have couples that come in, and maybe they've been together for two years, maybe they've come in, maybe they've been together for twenty years, but they they don't have the sexual language, um, or the sexual literacy, uh, or the communication literacy to figure out how to. Talk about these really fun, but also really vulnerable things was like what you were saying. And so uh, Sex Evangelicals is, is, is an attempt to speak out to that audience. And specifically for religious folks, one of the things that we note is that when you begin talking about sexuality and sexuality from the perspectives that Julia, you and I talk about it, that also moves a lot of people out of the church because the church, the evangelical and Pentecostal church sets very rigid expectations about how to do sex. And that works for some people, but not for most people. Uh, There's there's way more queer people out there than uh, the demographics would suggest. Queer people meaning uh, people who are interested in having sex that um, isn't um, that isn't straight, that isn't opposite sex, that isn't vanilla, whatever vanilla means, that isn't monogamous, whatever monogamous means. Once you begin like deconstructing those terms, that then sets some some tension in the relationship with religion, which leaves people with a a dilemma. I can either like say, y'all, Julia, Jeremiah are talking bullshit and then like moving back into the religious space or a couple can experiment with some of the things that we're talking about and realize, oh, this religion stuff that we learned, there's some fucked up shit here. I've got, we, we've, we've got some questions to ask, and then that leads to a whole uh, other kind of wider set of, of the common language that, that, that's being used in 2023 is the deconstruction process. Sure. Yeah, like an unlearning. Yeah, right. I like unlearning. I like unlearning and yeah. reconstructing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of the, one of the things that Christoph and I talk about all the time is this idea that... Um, you know, when you grow up in a culture, because that's the other thing, like in America, the culture is basically like Protestant, you know, we're all just, we don't say booby or (laughs) we don't talk about our private parts. We use cutesy little terms, you know? Um, and it actually goes back to a conversation Defo that you and I were just having about this, like myth of the Disney princess. And like, this is what romance is. And I think sexuality definitely falls into that, right? It's spontaneous. It's 
you will never stop feeling lust for this person that you love for the rest of your life. You will only want this person, blah, blah, blah. Um, but so it's one of those things that want, it's like when you start seeing the systems for what they are, you can't unsee it and everything just falls apart real yep. quick. Yeah. And, yeah. and when you have families and things are falling apart real quick, you mm. often have some really tough decisions to make. Yeah. That deserve a lot of care, that deserve a lot of attention, that shouldn't be made rashly, uh, but that also like need to be made nonetheless. And, and that's where Julia, you and I, I think, have some unique experience of helping people work through um, the myriad of decisions that come as a result of the reconstruction process. Mm-hmm. That's that's really fascinating. And I'm just briefly is uh, right. I mean, I grew up in a very hardcore religious environment myself. So uh, something called Church Universal and Triumphant, which is essentially a cult out in out in Montana. And so um, I feel you. And having to deconstruct and reconstruct. I mean, I spent probably the better part of 20 years basically doing that, right? And it's an ongoing process. I mean, the first 10 years were really, really hard. I mean, just talking about being pulled, I'm sure you identify with this, being pulled in two directions, right? There's this this, this pull toward what I knew, know, and what I, how I was brought up. And then, but then also this, this, this even stronger pull toward like the, that thread has been pulled. Right. And it's like, I can't now, I can't stop pulling it once I start pulling it and the care, you can't unsee it. And you really need to have that care. People like uh, people like your experience, I think is super, super, I think I would have definitely benefited from that, um, that kind of, uh, that kind of care and, and loving, uh, sort of transition, right. To a, being basically a different person. Um, yeah. and, and your I, whole world changes, right. Everything that you thought changed. was solid is not solid. Yeah. The language that, that, that I use is, is coming out as a sexual person. Right. Mm. Right. Oh, oh yeah. Surprise, mom and dad. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you had used the language of thread that totally works. I often think about the Jenga tower that mm. over time you ask one question, which leads to another <laughs> question. And often the Jenga tower crumbles. I don't mean this in a reductionist kind of way. Then you get to rebuild it and rebuilding it is hard as fuck. Sure. That's a yes. challenging process. And there can be something relieving in allowing it to fall uh, and then move forward. Awesome. Well, look, um, I want to get into this sort of dysfunctional sex ed in the United States conversation because uh, and we sort of started already, but I think it's it's really interesting. And so um, I understand that you two have more than a few qualms about the uh, status of sexual education in the United States. Will you talk to us about that? Tell us what's so damn wrong about the way the United States goes about sex ed. I love the framing of this. My life goal, seriously, my life goal, and I will do this, is that I want to develop a sexual health education curriculum for preschool because we have to start talking about our bodies, our bodies and consent from an early age. That being said, when people are curious to hear about sex therapy, understandably, they have a lot of questions about quote unquote sexual dysfunction. I totally get it. If I weren't a sex therapist, I would probably ask those same questions. However, 
the dysfunction is rarely from my perspective and from your perspective, Jeremiah, with the individual or even with the relationship structure. The dysfunction uh, is based in the lack of education for folks. And I've got personal experience uh, with this. I, I am divorced and I got married at a way too young age to a wonderful human being. I always wish him the best. And uh, no surprise, spoiler alert, the bill of goods that the church sold me around sexuality uh, was bullshit. And <laughs> after I got married at this way too, way too young of an age, I encountered all kinds of sexual distress and it impacted my entire life. Super, super devastating. And I saw one of the only uh, certified sex therapists in Columbus, Columbus, Ohio, uh, I hope is getting better sex education. But when I was living there, um, I, I wasn't able to find a therapist who specialized in sexuality very easily. And this therapist who uh, is a certified sex therapist, which means she's had a lot of training told me that I had every single sexual dysfunction that a woman could have, which looking back now as a certified sex therapist, I'm horrified uh, because the distress that I was having was absolutely a response and a normalized response to all not just misinformation, all the lies and lack of information that the structures around me communicated. So we've got to think structurally about the systems in, in the States and in other parts of the world too, around sexuality that doesn't address pleasure, that doesn't address consent outside of don't rape people and sadly still <laughs> raping people. Uh, so I'll let you pick up, uh, Jeremiah, but, uh, We've, we've got to do, we owe it to ourselves and to the next generation to do better. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at some stats today. Speaking of sexual abuse, the U.S. has a higher uh, rate of rape than every country in South America, every country in Asia, although we don't know about China because who knows what's going on with how statistics. Mm -hmm. uh, and most European countries, all but four. Uh, so... Um, so, Nifo, your question of like, how did we get here is really, really important. And the interest that Julia and I have is recognizing the role that the evangelical church plays and the marriage of the evangelical church and the Republican Party uh, starting in the Nixon years and really beginning to play out in the Reagan years. And one of the ways that we've seen this happening is, well, who's paying for this? How is money uh, getting into uh, the pocketbooks of people who are providing abstinence-only education? Since 1981, uh, the U.S. government has spent close to $3 billion on abstinence-only education. Wait, hold on. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Could you just say that one more time? <laughs> 1981. I'll, I'll give you some more fun facts, too. Since 1981... <laughs> Close, the U.S. has spent close to $3 billion, billion with a B, on abstinence-only education. The Guttmacher Institute, which is a premier uh, public health uh, research group, reports that in 2017, 2017, so this is towards the end of the Trump administration and only somehow six years ago, the U.S. <laughs> spent $300 million on government grants to teach abstinence-only education. 
So I'm sorry. I need to leave. <laughs> so, it's, so it's easy to say, and, and I'm saying this because it's easy to say, oh, those backwards evangelicals, those backward Pentecostals. And, and, and that's okay. Like we can make that move, I suppose. But it's more important to recognize the ways that uh, those groups have colluded with conservative groups, with, with neoliberal groups. Uh, to create this fear-mongering uh, or fear-based, fear-mongering uh, education set uh, rooted in um, kind of abstinence-only education. Um, so, so, th so that's that's one of, of how we got here. In in '96, this isn't just a Republican thing. In 1990, President Clinton uh, passed a Title V abstinence-only marriage. Uh, which is seen as kind of the, the, the basis for all these other kind of spinoff builds um, that talks about abstinence being the expected standard. In 1996, by the way, I was 12. Um, so this was stuff that was rolled out right in, in time for my high school experience. Um, parts of this include burying children outside of marriage has harmful consequences for children. Um, if you're 17, sure. But like Julia and I are in our 30s, not getting married anytime soon. So, you know, there's huge problems that, that, that come with that. Um, you know, mutual, um, there's language around how to reject sexual advances, but no language, no education about like how to say yes, about how to negotiate, about how to communicate effectively. Um, so... The or how not to rape. Right. And rejecting sexual sure. advances, that's code for women don't get raped. Correct. 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 That's right. Coded. This is how you fend off the men. Fend off the men, exactly. Right. So, um, so yeah, there, there are hundreds of millions of dollars. Every state uh, since 1981 has accepted government funding. Um, so this is not a regional thing. This is a nationwide thing. Uh, as we speak in 2019, there's 24 states, including every state in the Southeast, uh, that stress abstinence-only sex education. And again, that's a 2019. We've lost about three years worth of research because of COVID and its impact on the education system. My guess is that the next time Guttmacher uh, produces a study like this, that that number will increase. Uh, so that in 2024, we'll have over 30 states that have stressed abstinence-only education. So you don't need to have have grown up in evangelical Christianity to have been fucked over by evangelical Christianity. Right. Right. That is so important. I, you know, one thing um, I just want to jump in real quick is you mentioned about that sex out of marriage uh, thing, right? The, the pushing this idea that, right, the only time you should have sex is when you're married. And this sort of locks into something we talked about um, in a, on a recent episode or an episode that will be coming out soon. Um, and that is this idea of, uh, of the reason why black people are poor is because of broken family structures, right? Which is connected to sex out of marriage, right? And so it all just sort of all this stuff comes together in that same narrative, right? It's yeah. all that and also same that stereotype narrative. of the horny black people. Yes, you know? yes, like that's, yes. It's a way of dehumanizing, and yeah, yeah. And and I think we'll probably get into more of this later. But in your email, one of the questions was, "Why should we care about sexual health education?" And I would say, "Well, sexual health is a part of human rights, and." Sex 
sexuality intersects with every other uh, justice issue. So if we care about racism, if we care about the elderly, if we care about prote protecting children, if we care about differing abilities, and, and again, we could continue and continue and continue, then we, then we must care about sexuality. Right, right. I mean, I, I think that seems to be one of the one of the things that we keep that that YouTube keep coming back to, and that uh, is, which is is that sexuality really is at the heart in a lot of ways of all of these issues, right? I mean, and and maybe that's a lot of what connected to what you said as well is this idea that it's 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 when we are at our most vulnerable, um, and so maybe that is really in a lot of ways at the core of it. I mean, we've built <laughs> built an entire nation, an entire uh, culture around pretending like sex is not happening, that children are not like young people are not going to have sex, that uh, people don't have sex out of marriage, that people don't want to, that people are are perfectly happy being having sex with one person for literally the rest of their life. I mean, the, these ideas that are basically all driven by like you two are saying this even just basically Protestant religious ethos. And absence only education actually reinforces what Absence only education is trying to avoid. So by that, <laughs> so we talk about eroticism, um, eroticism being kind of the sexual energy that gets uh, created uh, between two or more people. And eroticism, according to uh, researcher Jack Morin, is this attraction, attraction to another person, plus obstacles. And a really good way to create obstacles is by telling people don't have sex. Oh, well, fuck this. I'm going to figure out a way to have sex. I'm going to sneak around and do it. I'm going to create all these like hot scenarios uh, where we're having sex in these like really um, unique, creative, maybe not entirely well thought out places. <laughs> and setting people up to receive the moral shaming from the church and also setting up people to have like less than positive experiences because people aren't given permission to talk about sex and to collaboratively build a sexual experience that works for both or more people. Right. And that's a, a more insidious way that abstinence-only education uh, negatively impacts a person's sexuality because they don't learn the skills to eroticism. And I would say eroticism is in part a skill, sure. right? So um, attraction and, and who we're attracted to, that's a whole other very, very long conversation. But like developing obstacles is like a skill. Yeah. Uh, and when we tell folks just say no, which is what I and many other people learned, when, when you get married, when you move into a long-term partnership um, or even earlier than that, uh, if say if um, if trying not to have sex is your only obstacle, you're not going to have the skills and the tools to like create exactly. uh, like an erotic relationship or relationships in the future. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Oh my God. You're, yeah. I mean, and that's spot on. You talk about teenagers, the fastest way to get them to do something is to tell them not to do it. Look at the war on drugs. Like how effective was that? <laughs> and then the other thing is you have these kids who then, since they're not getting a realistic or useful sex education from their schools or wherever they might get it, 
they're learning from porn because they can get it. They can get that stuff. And so then you have an experience where this like, you know, just this guy, I'm thinking about euphoria where they think that like, well, this is what girls want because this is what they did in porn. And the girl is just like, now I'm traumatized for life because you just strangled me, you know, or whatever it is. Right, right. And we have to address then porn literacy and to talk about what's the purpose of porn. Porn is about entertainment and porn is about fantasy. And there are still some problematic uh, issues there in terms of who in this country do we do we um, do we allow to have sexual value? What bodies have sexual value? So uh we, we have to do better with our porn too. And when, when that is the only way that people can access uh, sex education, yeah. which is not sex education, then, then they are not learning good skills or tools to translate yeah. into. And they're hungry for it at that age, Absolutely. right? Like they're dying for yeah. that. And, yeah. yeah, this is something that I wrote in prep for this too, is there are no mentoring structures for teenagers to talk about sex. And the eroticism of teen sex relies on sex being underground. So there's no space, or there are few spaces for teens and young adults to process what happened to them. Uh, right. process, except with the other teens, and the other teens that they're talking about, they don't know what they're doing either. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I have a, um, I, I work with quite a bit of college students, uh, and I, I have several international college students. And one of my college students was saying, y'all have some fucked up messages around sexuality here. And he was describing how his mom wanted to talk with him about sexuality so much growing up. And he's like, you know, it kind of turned me off to sex when my mom was like, do you have condoms? Do you want some new condoms? Should I buy you some new condoms? Do you want to go together to buy condoms? Does your girlfriend need a vibrator? Should I send your girlfriend a vibrator? He's like, I don't even want to have sex anymore. Like my mom ruined sex for me. <laughs> she took away the obstacle. Well, that's exactly it. Now it's demystified, right? It's sort of just sort of, and uh, you know, you were talking about the more you talk about sex in some ways, the less sexy it gets, right? You know, it, which is sort of the that ironic like the thing. The skills and the tools and the resources to develop a sexy relationship, like when that is what like he and or partners want at that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so um, I think we maybe we should move on now uh, to a topic which we kind of hit on already. But um, obviously, you two are experts in the field. And you think about these issues a lot. And um, where in American culture or politics or society, do you most see the dysfunctional impact of our sex ed system, right? Like, why should we, I guess, I guess a better question is, why should we care about this? Why should, let me put it this way. Why should like Liz and I care about this, right? We're just average people living average lives, um, um, hopefully better than average, but you know, we're just normal people. Why should we really care about this, right? Like Liz is going to teach her kids good sexual behavior, presumably. I don't have any kids. I'm going to try. But, um, well, we do what we do what we can, but what? <laughs> I guess, like, where do you see the impact, right? Where, why should we all care about this? Yeah, I would start by saying sex education is not just about fucking. Hmm. As <laughs> I would argue, quite a small piece of the sexual pie. Sex education, as I mentioned earlier, is about expression, uh, the ways that a person chooses to adorn, to represent their bodies. Most importantly, sex education is about communication. Sex education involves understanding what your body wants, 
figuring out how to negotiate that in a collaborative way with other people. Um, sex education is about exploring all the possible options that two or more people might have to experience pleasure and figuring out how to determine what makes sense for everyone in that particular context. Sex education involves cheerleading, encouraging the ability to mutually give and receive. And so from my perspective, if we want a world with less violence, mm -hmm. if we want a world with better communication skills, a greater sense of community, a greater sense of coexistence, investing in comprehensive sex education would be a great start. Nice. And, and yeah. it, uh, sex education hits on every structural level. So my background is social work. And in social work, we talk about uh, microsystems, mesosystems, and macrosystems. And sexual health obviously impacts the microsystem in terms of our individual relationships. It impacts our our family structures, our broader community. And then, as we've been discussing, the entire system of the United States or wherever else you reside. Yeah. We touched on this earlier. If we care about justice, then we care about sexual health. Jeremiah, you had uh, referenced violence and sexuality and pleasure being an antidote to violence. Betty Dodson, who is no longer alive, but a very well-known sex educator. I I met her and that was a celebrity moment for me. I don't usually get excited about celebrities, but I was excited about Betty Dodson. She talks about like healing the world one orgasm at a time. And mm. that's, that's beautiful. Ultimately, yeah. I would say sexual health is anti-violence work and to put that in a more positive way like pleasure and peace oriented work yeah i love that i mean really if you think about it it's all these skills that you mentioned that are necessary for a healthy and fulfilling sex life like communication and being in touch with yourself and you know understanding your own needs and seeing how and being in touch with how you feel these are all things that translate into the greater good in every every way you can think of, right? It's not just that. And then you have motivation because, you know, it feels really good. <laughs> <laughs> Added bonus, right? Yeah. Added bonus. Um, I, I wonder, you know, and this is, this is a hard question. I didn't, and, and, and I didn't tell you about it earlier, but how do you, right? Because progressives like I presume you are, and I know Liz is, and I know I am, right? Like right, these kind of conversations are, are conversations that we're, I'm frankly hungry for, right? Like um, this is stuff that bubbles below the surface of my consciousness, even as a, myself as an individual, right? Let alone what's going on out there in the world, which I also care about, but as me and as an individual, right? Because we, this is the system we grew up in, a system that is very sexually repressed, right? Um, and we are, frankly, we are obviously sex, sexual creatures. But what about the conservative? Like, is there an argument that you could that you would make to um, to a conservative that is uh, maybe not the evangelical because that's probably off the table as a practical matter, but uh, but the more conservative person who's afraid to say boobies and who's afraid to say vagina and penis and all these things, right? Um, is there an argument you would make to them? It's a hard question. It's hard. So I want to be careful in answering this because I want to 
I want to protect confidentiality. I had a session of course. in which I talked about this uh, with, with okay. a couple, newer couple that I'm uh, working with. And um, interesting, well, the male partner made this connect. I, I noticed that the male partner kept referring to things that he wanted the female partner to do. And said, you know, Jeremiah, I have like traditional family values. Um, and what he was setting up was those traditional family values where he is a man or rude, excuse me, and he is a man like telling women what they should do. And that's how he then defined his, his sense of masculinity is through, is, is through the other, is through what the other does for you. You know, so one of the things that I would encourage, and, and, and I think that this happens a lot in conservative masculinity, where there's a lot of reflections from men about like what women should do. And when there's like, think about like the incel community and, and like Andrew, Ta Andrew Tate pulls a shit. Oh, yeah. Um, Ugh. You men are in this position because women don't want you, because women find you unsexy. It, it, like all this comments about what women are doing. And my encouragement would be like, what if we turn this around? And I said, this is client, like, like, what do you want? You know, what are your expectations of yourself as a man? And can you talk about yourself as a man without referring to what women should do? Mm. And it was hard for him. Uh, and, 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 and I like, I, I held my line. I held my position. And by the end of the session, he was kind of sort of beginning to get there and, and we'll see if they come back. But, um, but that's a, but but that's a position that that I would encourage um, people, specifically conservative men, to think about. How can we talk about what it is to be men, not from the perspective of ourselves as men in relationship to women and getting out of this like uh, gender binary, but what does it mean to be a man and also to be a good person, and be a good communicator? Yeah. And to be able to be thoughtful about how we how we use our bodies, how we talk about our bodies, which then like opens the door to, well, men have to start talking to each other, first of all. Um, you know, so um, I, I'm answering this question from the perspective of, 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 of men, because I think that rooted in 21st century conservative thought is this hyper rigid understanding of what it is to be male, what it is to be female. Yeah. On a broader level, I wish that the pursuit of a less violent, more just society would be enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, so on a more political level, I would encourage uh, a more conservative audience to actually look purely at the stats that we have without even interpreting the research. So, OK, conservative. Uh, if you would like uh, less unplanned pregnancies, if you would like uh, to delay the age of uh, sexual debut, whatever that means, uh, comprehensive sex education that focuses on consent, that focuses on pleasure, uh, rather than purely avoidance of an STI or avoidance of like the legal repercussions of, of an assault, like that is how you're going to get what you want. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. 
That's real smart. I mean, I think, right, because we are generally agreed as um, it's the conservatives and progressives are pretty agreed that it'd be great if, if kids didn't have children, right? Sure. It'd be great if 17-year-olds didn't have kids. We all generally agree on that. So yeah. the question we have is- slightly different ways of going about it. slightly different ways of getting there. <laughs> but like, you know, but if you are an if you are an evidence-based person, right, and theoretically you should say, well, well, let's look at- how we get there, what works and what doesn't. And we know, th- what, what what did you say, $3 billion later, uh, right? That abstinence-only <sighs> education is not what's going to get us there. That's not going to solve the right, problem. Right, right. And I would like to believe that across the political aisle, we can uh, hope for less violence towards women and the queer community and any other marginalized group. Sadly, I'm actually not sure that's necessarily a buy-in with conservative structures. Uh, No. I don't think it is either, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Because the other thing that I'm thinking is, oh, well, we could say, like, if we want less, like, sexual assault, but um, I'm actually not sure that's necessarily a shared value. So I think, like, you're right, Defoe, that maybe the only shared value is, like, preventing 15-year-olds from having children. Well, so... So, Sadly. so let's this then. So, so you mentioned Defo that you uh, grew up in a cult. Julia and I both grew up in versions of cults. And the way that you take down cults is not by taking down the cult. The way you take down the cult is doing it one individual at a time. And when people who, when there are individual people who leave, holding on to those people, comforting those people, uh, which gets back Julia to the work that you and I are doing with sex evangelicals. Like, I'm not personally interested in taking on Fox News. Um, because it's not particularly worth my time. But what I do think can be helpful is having individual conversations with individual people in which we can ask some some hard questions, like much like I referred to with, with my client, and, and, and also like be there for when kind of the logical cracks begin to happen. So when we start talking about sexuality, for instance, and realizing that Oh, in order for me to have the sexual relationship that I want, that works for me and my partner, like I have to, like I have to step away from some of these conservative values, holding on to those particular people, uh, and yeah. um, like the conservative party is going to change when the Republican Party says that it's had enough. Nothing that the Democratic Party is going to do is is going is going to make it change. This is such a great point. And we talk about this, Liz, we like we talk about this all the time, right? Like these structures, these systems are so big and their momentum is so there's so much momentum, right? Right. Like people, individuals are almost irrelevant, like, right? Like I, as an individual, it's, are, am almost irrelevant, except for the fact that I can be there for individuals. Yeah. That's exactly right. right. That's exactly right. First of all, I can work on myself, mm-hmm. right? And 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 that and in that way be better for the people around me. And I can have a sphere a sphere of influence. There's a sphere of influence. Well, I do have a sphere of influence of some kind. Absolutely. Right? Let me work with work with that sphere of influence, right? Let me work with that and be the best possible thing for that. I love that. That's like a great way to sort of wrap this up, actually, because um it 
comes back to a lot of what we talk about on this show all the time. It's perfect. And I, I want to just give you uh, to uh, the last word. Um, it's been really awesome hanging out with you, all three of you, but um, but I hang out with you Liz all the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but, but seriously, Julia and, and Jeremiah, do you have any final thoughts uh, before, before we um, close out? Do you want to, you want to, you want to plug your show? Um, tell us what to so tell us uh, what, where we can find you and also um, any final thoughts. That's a lot there, yeah. but you know, have you at can it. plug away. Jeremiah's oh, good yeah. at plugging. <laughs> we I didn't mean that sexually, but it sounded sexy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's in keeping with the times I like wasn't. Although Jeremiah's good at plugging too. Uh, <laughs> 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 few times it was like an unintentional sex joke. Usually they're intentional. Um, <laughs> I love it. So, so you can find us online at www.sexvangelicals.com. Our uh, social media channel du jour is Instagram. Uh, we just finished up a three-part series where we read through a book called... I don't even remember what the damn book is called. I created alternative names for it. It's called Beautiful the- Union uh, by uh, Joshua Butler. So the backstory with this is the Gospel Coalition is this uh, big kind of conservative media conglomerate that speaks to evangelicals. They posted this section of, of this book uh, and it completely backfired. And, <laughs> and um, they said a few weeks ago, we want you to read this book in its entirety. Uh, so or read, read the first chapter that we took this like inflammatory quote in its entirety. So here's the introduction. Here's chapter one. <laughs> so Julia and I said, OK, challenge accepted. And so we read the entirety of the introduction in chapter one um, out loud and spread it out over three podcast episodes. Uh, And it's really uh, in order to understand more of where the conservative uh, movement comes from, like it's important to understand uh, some of the language, some of the uh, philosophical, theological moves that they make, and and to also like deconstruct the shit out of them, uh, which Julia, I think you and I did quite well uh, throughout these three podcast episodes through our sexual health lens. And talking about what healthy sex healthy sex looks like. Um, so we just finished that up, and uh, our next series is moving into well, what is sexual health, and talking about the sex uh, education that we wish that we had, uh, and talking about uh, talking about consent, uh, talking about honesty, talking about shared values, mutual pleasure, um, a healthy way to talk about STIs, uh, and, and of course non exploitation uh, sex. Sexual that is safe. Uh, these are principles that are rooted in the work of Doug Brown Harvey, uh, who we had on our podcast. Um, so, so that's what's around the corner for us uh, in the next uh, couple of months. So, uh, so, so join us on the journey as Julia and I talk about uh, the sex education that, that we wish that we had. I'll be listening to that because I have an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old, and I am oh. starting to think about how we're going to approach that. So I'll be listening. Yeah. Great, great. One of the episodes that we have is explicitly around how to have uh, explicit, honest conversations with kids. Um, awesome. Amazing. We're, if we're expecting honesty to be a sexual health principle, and if we're not talking about sex, if sex is secret, if it's underground, like, again, we're setting people up to fail. Right. That's right. That's that right. episode is particularly helpful list for you. Yes. Well, thank you. 
Awesome. And we're going to put, we'll put all this information in the show notes um, so that everyone who is listening can access this because this is, this has been an absolutely uh, enlightening conversation. The two of you are lovely. Oh um, God, just really talk to great you guys to hang- for like hours. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We loved hanging Keep out going. with you. We could, we could, you know, um, so um, thanks so much for, for coming on all the way from the Netherlands and um, you know, we appreciate you and uh, we'll, we'll have to have conversations again in the future. Yes, for sure. This yeah, was delightful. Definitely. I'm like, oh, why do they live far away? Aww. I know. We should hang out, right? <laughs> like, I'm like, can we like, just like go out for coffee, a drink? Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. I would love it. Well, that was a super, super interesting conversation. I think on multiple levels, it is just, uh, you know, a, a, a bit like weirdly uncomfortable, but also weirdly gratifying to talk <laughs> about you know, sex and sex related topics. I'm really glad that uh, Julia and Jeremiah sort of just grab these things by the lapels and are talking about these issues. And I think it's super interesting too to connect them to all the things we talk about on the show, the political nightmare that we are living through in the United States, um, the uh, the abortion and all the sort of um, the abortion restrictions, et cetera. Um, very interesting stuff. How about you? Do you have any final thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it's awesome to, um, I mean, if you think about it, we're radically human, right? And what's more human than sex? It's, <laughs> it really is like such, it's the ultimate vulnerability. It's the ultimate, like, it's not a thing that we can fight. It's a human thing that we all have a relationship with in some way. And um, it is so wild to think about uh, how deeply impacted it is by what's going on in our culture, right? So I think that it's a crucial part of our conversation about what it is to be human and what it is to be compassionate and um, to do the work of social justice. Well said, very, very well said. I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to going on their show as well. I think that I think that it'll be really interesting to continue this this sort of conversation um and uh it's it's uh, to because like you said i mean there there's nothing more human than sex and i think another thing you said that really got me too was um you know it's it's sort of like an inevitable part of being a human being and like and like we have we have sort of developed entire religions and cultures <laughs> trying to restrain it <laughs> trying uh, to control trying it, to yes. our damnedest to control it we just it, can't do it but you just can't do it and uh and it, we, we might as well just jump in the fucking pool you know and and really come to terms with this and i think that um certainly united states which is uh notoriously buttoned up about this sort of thing yeah. um we'd all be better off yeah um, <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah. um uh yeah. and jeremy and Jer- jeremiah sorry jeremiah and julia were so awesome they were uh, so fun to talk to i feel like i have new friends <laughs> totally totally <laughs> so funny yeah they're wonderful people like really wonderful people to talk to and uh you know it, it was like just meeting a couple friends and that's always uh, and i think the conversation yeah. reflected that i hope it yeah. did um and i hope everybody uh everybody out there enjoyed it and i also hope that everybody out there remembers that if you like our show to make sure to subscribe to it leave a review check out our patreon and tell your friends to listen new episodes post mondays on all the major podcast channels Please connect with us on social media because we love you and we want to talk to you. Until next time, please care for each other. 
Share your experience, strength, and hope with each other and with the people you love. 